I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, are familiar with the phrase, there is no I in team. And yet I find it somewhat ironic that consistently when I find myself listening to post-game interviews with professional athletes, how the vast majority of the time focuses on the contributions of just one player. You find that funny at all? That's part of the reason I find it so incredibly refreshing when a professional athlete chooses to focus on the team rather than on their individual performance when they're interviewed in the time after, after the game. Because there's an incredibly important thing for them to recognize, and in that moment they're realizing that there is no victory without the participation of the team as a whole. It's a really critical thing when it comes to team sports to recognize that it's not the contributions of just one that make the team win or lose, it's the contributions of the entire team. And in that way, I find this kind of similar to our text this morning. Paul is criticizing the church in Corinth because when they meet together and when they celebrate communion, everyone is so concerned about himself or herself that what they're actually doing is more harm than good. We'll see this in verse 17 when he says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but actually for the worse. He notes the fact that because each one of them is so focused on themselves, when they engage in participation in the Lord's Supper, they're actually making things worse. And so as we study this text in our time together this morning, as we consider what this means, I think we're going to find out, or we're going to find out, excuse me, what happens when we make communion, when we make the Lord's Supper all about us. We're going to see what happens in a church when we make the church all about me. Read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat, or excuse me, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would be, not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father, we stand before an incredible text this morning. And we stand before the opportunity to celebrate this 
ceremony of the Lord's Supper that you've given us, an incredible reality in the gospel. Father, we pray that as we study your word, as we focus on your critique of the church in Corinth, that you would guide our discussion, that you would speak through me, that you would guide our hearts in our time together this morning. Help us to approach the Lord's Supper not with a flippancy and not with a half-heartedness, but help us to consider what we're about to do together. Lord, use this time for your glory. Use it to challenge us and convict us. Use it to edify us and conform us to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll likely recall, if you've been with us over the last few months, that Paul has been addressing this Corinthian church's spiritual arrogance and their self-centered focus. Chapters 1 through 4 talked about the divisions over leadership, the fights over which pastor and which preacher was their favorite. Chapters 5 through 7 focused on the disagreements over morality, the right and the wrong, and the right way to handle oneself in the Christian community. Then in chapters 8 through 10, he talked about their disputes over their rights and freedoms, how each one of them was holding tightly to what they thought they deserved in the church. Now, starting, in, starting last week, we moved into chapters 11 through 14, and Paul criticizes their disunity over their corporate gatherings when they come together. In our text this morning, we'll see Paul's criticism of the way they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, Christ's instruction for the way the Lord's Supper ought to be celebrated, and then lastly, our practical application on how we should celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Last week, addressing the issue of gender distinctions in the church, Paul began by commending their good doctrine. Remember that in verse 2? Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But it's interesting to note that on the topic of celebrating the Lord's Supper, Paul has no commendation for this church. He offers only criticism. Throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has taken a very even-handed approach. He had said, let me address this side, this side of the dispute, but let me also address this side of the dispute, and this counter-angle or this alternative position. Here on their celebration of the Lord's Supper, Paul offers only critique. Because the very nature of the fractions and divisions within the church revealed the heart of the matter and the problem. And so he, with laser-like focus, addresses their celebration of the Lord's Supper together. Let's look first at Paul's criticism in verse 17 through 22. He, he highlights the fact that he's addressing what he's come before when he starts off the topic by saying, but, but, or in contradiction to his commendation before, he says, but in the following instruction, I do not commend you. Remember that word commend was the idea of praise or celebration. And he says, I have no commendation. I have no praise to offer you here. Instead, he offers a general critique. Just like last week, Paul is going to move from the foundational general principle to the specific application. And so he starts with his general critique. Look at verse 17. He says, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. His general critique involves two components of the church. First of all, he notes their necessary gatherings. Did you pick up on that? It's kind of an interesting phrase. He says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. It's an interesting phrase. This idea of gather literally means the idea of physically assembling in one place. 
You'll note in this text that that idea of when you come together, when you gather together, comes up five times. He's going to repeat that theme, and then he's going to come back to it again in chapter 14 when he talks about the order that is necessary in worship. But here, he uses the phrase, when you come together, and then it's interesting to note as well, did you find it redundant that in verse 18 he says, when you come together as a church. Church, the terms literally means, ecclesia literally means an assembly. An assembly of people who have gathered together. Essentially, Paul is saying, when you assemble as an assembly. Note the redundancy here. Paul assumes the corporate gathering of the church. He assumes the church is coming together as an assembly. I would argue that regular physical assembling is inherent to the existence of a local church. Paul presumes that if it is a church, it will be coming together, specifically to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to see that here in a moment. But he also notes that in addition to these necessary gatherings, there are also necessary divisions. And this is an interesting phrase that gets used here later in the section. Notice what he says. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. He says there are divisions. The term here we've run into before in 1 Corinthians. It's the term schismata which conveys the idea of schisms, fractures, the literal tearing of an object to break it into pieces. Remember where this came up last? Back in chapter 1, verse 10, flip to the left in your Bibles briefly, when he was introducing this whole critique of the Corinthian church, he used this term. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, that there be no schismata, that there be no schisms, no fractures, no divisiveness. It's going to be used again in chapter 12 when he's addressing spiritual gifts and the way the body is supposed to be knit together in one body. But here he says, there are divisions, there are schisms in your church. Now what comes after this is where it gets surprising. Did you pick up on that? He says, there must be factions, verse 19, among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And we go, what? There's two potential interpretations of this text. The first is to take this text and understand it ironically. That Paul is kind of poking fun at the fact that some of them think they're more spiritually mature, more impressive than others. And so when the church comes together, they're saying, this is when I get to show off how impressive I am. But I actually prefer an interpretation that Paul is being entirely genuine here. And he's saying there is a necessity of divisions in the church that God uses for his purposes. The term here says, for there must be factions. Your NIV may have the translation differences, and I actually don't like that translation. I think the, N, or the NASB and the ESB translate it better when they say factions. Because the term itself conveys the idea of a divisiveness, not mere differences of opinion between believers. And he says, why is this necessary? Why is this taking place in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized? While divisions should never be sought in the church, that's been very clear throughout 1 Corinthians, one of God's purposes in them is to reveal genuine believers. That is a sobering thing to consider. That God uses even the divisiveness in our own hearts to reveal what's really going on in a church. 
Now, we want to recognize that even as we say that, that is not permission for all of us to run around and every time we have a difference of opinion with somebody else in the church to say, I must be the one that's genuine and you're not. That would run contrary to what all of 1 Corinthians has been arguing. And yet there is a way in which we should recognize that part of the reason these divisions get brought to light is to reveal the genuineness. Both gatherings and distinctions are a part of church life. They are normal activities that the church engages in, and they are not surprising, if you will. Again, he's not saying that we should pursue these divisions, but he is saying that God has purposes in them. From this basis, Paul then goes on to talk about the flashpoint of this critique. What is specifically his criticism of this church? And we see his specific critique in verses 20 through 22. He says this specifically. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Okay, let's just pause there for a moment. His specific critique here is he's denying that they are even celebrating communion when they come together. Did you pick up on that? This is kind of a big deal. He's saying you're coming together and you're eating a meal, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. He denies that their communion is even communion. He says communion isn't chiefly a private affair. You all think it's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about what I'm getting out of this. But communion is a corporate celebration of the church. He says it's something we engage in together. It's something you can't engage in disregarding your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul looks at them and he says, your disunity and your behavior are so contrary to the nature of the Lord's Supper that it isn't even taking place. They were eating a meal, but it wasn't the Lord's Supper. Now, as a bit of an aside here, this is part of the reason we would deny the Roman Catholic teaching ex opere operato. Now, it sounds really great in Latin, and most of you probably don't know what I'm talking about, But that term speaks to the idea that you can engage in a ritual, you can engage in a work, and by the very nature of engaging in that work, you get spiritual edification and infusion of grace. Specifically, more often than not talking about the Eucharist. Paul here, it's worth noting, says that simply engaging in a ritual does nothing for you. Simply engaging in a ritual isn't even the Lord's Supper when engaged without the right heart. Now, what, what were they doing? Why is Paul criticizing them? Look at verse 21. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. His specific criticism of the Corinthian church is the rich believer's indifference to the poor believers. Let me try and explain this picture just a bit in more detail. In the Corinthian society, in Greek society as a whole, you had multiple classes of citizens. You had the wealthy landowners who owned basically everything and as a result could engage in a life of luxury. The Greek culture despised physical labor, and so if you had enough money, you didn't really have to work and you had all sorts of free time. On the other hand, you had the working class people that would engage in all sorts of different endeavors, and then at the bottom of the rung, you had the slaves who were basically not their own masters. They couldn't do whatever they wanted to. They had their schedules constrained, and as a result, the early church more often than not, would engage in worship in the evening. So they would celebrate a meal together, and they would celebrate communion together. 
And what appears to be happening here in this Corinthian church is the wealthy landowners started that celebration mid-afternoon. They didn't have to work, so they got together at three or four in the afternoon and they started celebrating the Lord's Supper and they started eating and they started drinking. Well, then later on in the evening, four, five, six, the the labor class started to roll in and they joined them for the meal and they engaged in whatever was left until finally in the evening when the servants finally got off, they kind of trickled in. But by that time, the party had been raging for hours. And those that were wealthy landowners were totally sloshed. And Paul says, do you realize how ridiculous this picture is? You're celebrating the Lord's Supper together by totally ignoring the needs of your brothers and sisters. You that have arrived early and have eaten all of the food and have gotten totally drunk on all of the wine are totally indifferent to your brothers and sisters who are coming in later in the evening and aren't even getting to eat. I think his response in verse 22 is appropriate. What? It's great. Like, we all have these moments, as a parent, I've had these moments where I had no other good explanation other than, what? Paul looks at this church and he says, what in the world are you doing? You're engaging in an activity that is supposed to demonstrate Christ's love and self-sacrifice for you while treating your brothers and sisters with total indifference. He offers these four scathing questions. He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Of course they had houses to eat and drink in. They all had their own private homes to go home to. And he's not advocating gluttony and drunkenness when you're in your own home. He's simply saying, if you're going to engage in that sort of ridiculous behavior, at least do it when your brothers and sisters aren't around. At least do it in your private homes rather than doing it and offending your brothers and sisters. And then his language gets extremely strong. Look at his second question here. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? They had bought into what their culture says was valuable. That those that owned land and those that had money had a special place in society and those that were slaves were nothing. He says you are despising the church of God and you are humiliating those who have nothing. That is incredibly strong language. When we take the Lord's Supper, indifferent to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are despising the church of God and humiliating those that have nothing. Remember the last time this idea came up in 1 Corinthians 3. Flip to the left in your Bibles one more time here to 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 16 and 17. Paul used this same sort of language in this text, talking about the divisions in the church. He said, Do you not know that you, the people, are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And here he says, you despise the church of God, and you humiliate those that have nothing when you do this. And then one final question, two final questions, if you will, that he offers up here at the end. He says this, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you, praise you in this? And he actually answers this question just so that there's clarity on what he feels about this subject. No, I will not. 
He says, I cannot. You are celebrating a tradition. You are maintaining something that I taught you to do, but you are doing it in such a way that I cannot commend it at all. Their individualism, their unloving indifference was denying the very gospel reality that the Lord's Supper was based on. Do you see that? Their action was betraying their profession. They were engaging in a ritual, but the ritual meant nothing because their heart was in the wrong place. This is how I summarize this point. And forgive me, I know this is really lengthy and confusing, but I couldn't think of anything shorter. Communion is about the church. That's it. <laughs> Communion is about the church. It's not first and foremost about just me. Now, to clarify what we mean by the church, just in case you're unfamiliar, the church is the people of God. If this building burned down tomorrow, we would still be a church. He says, communion is about the church. You can't engage in communion without the church. You can't eat the elements indifferent to the church. And this is significant for us because it impacts how we do what we do on a regular basis in celebrating the Lord's Supper. It means we can't gather as a church and celebrate communion while fostering this sort of indifference toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't go throughout the week gossiping about and slandering and putting down and hurting and unloving your brothers and sisters and then come to the table and say, that doesn't matter, I'm right here. Paul says our actions betray what we really believe. As a church, this means that communion is a corporate celebration. It's something we do together. It's something we have the privilege of celebrating together. I entitled this message, Putting the Community Back in Communion, for that reason. Communion is a communal activity. So Paul offers up this criticism for the church in Corinth. But now he tips his hand that he's moving to where he bases this critique on. Where is he getting this idea from? Where is the greater reality that this is based upon? In verse 23, he tips his hand, or 23, he tips his hand by saying, four. Four, let me, let me give you some instruction, what undergirds my criticism of your church, and he details Christ's instruction. And this is the part of the text that we're familiar with, because we typically read these verses as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. But try and read the verses we're about to read in light of Paul's critique of the church and the way they were celebrating communion. Christ's instruction, first he tells us what we remember, and then he tells us what we proclaim. First, what we remember. Look at verse 23 through 25. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He says, the reason I'm critiquing your celebration of the Lord's Supper is because of what Christ gave us as instruction for how we should celebrate it in his last Passover. 
That's part of the reason we read from Luke 22, so that we had this text in mind and what Christ said when we read Paul's critique of the church here. He says, first, we remember Christ's body, and second, we remember Christ's blood. First, he says, we remember Christ's body in the element of the bread that we take together. Now, few words so well express what Christ did in sacrificing his body, as well as Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Turn to the left in your Bibles to Isaiah. If you're unfamiliar, Psalms is about in the middle of your Bibles. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. It's the first prophetic book in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah is describing what we came to know as the the suffering servant. He prophesies about one who would come to address the issues that were present in Israel's sin and in the hearts of people. And I love this text because it describes what Christ did in his body on the cross so well. Look at verse 4 through 6. Speaking of Christ, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, when the Corinthian church was celebrating the Lord's Supper together, They were looking at the element of the bread as a reminder of Christ's sacrifice of his body on the cross. That he was beaten for us, that he was bruised for us, that he was hung on a cross for us, that his body was so beaten that he was almost unrecognizable. And he did it for the sake of others. When we eat the bread, we are remembering that reality. We are picturing in our minds what Christ did when he offered his body up on the cross for us. But secondarily, he says, we also remember Christ's blood. So this is my body, which is for you. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You can look to numerous places in the Old Testament to speak to the significance of blood, how blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sins, and how blood was offered up in ratifying covenants. Leviticus 17 verse 11 would be one place to go if you're interested in reading this afternoon. But the significance of offering blood was it was the idea of a substitute or a life for a life. When the blood was shed on behalf of another, the indication was this is a sacrifice for another. This is my life for your life. This is where the idea of substitution in substitutionary atonement comes from. And so Christ, by giving up his blood, both paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and ratified a new covenant, a new opportunity for us to have relationship with God through him. Jeremiah chapter 31 articulates this so well. The book next to Isaiah in your Bibles. Let me just read a brief section from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 describes this new covenant that Christ purchased with his blood. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty in his blood. He also ratified a new covenant, a new relationship that we can have with God. Not the old covenant of the Mosaic covenant and everything that went along with that. I'm not going to go into all the detail on that subject. We can talk about it after the service if you want to. But he ushered in a new covenant, a new opportunity for us to have genuine relationship with God. When he spilt his blood, it ratified that covenant and guaranteed the opportunity for our relationship with him. When we drink the cup, we remember that reality. We remember that we absolutely deserve the wrath of God, but Christ absorbed that wrath on our behalf, and he shed his blood where our blood should have been shed. Communion is a memorial of the significance of Christ's atoning sacrifice for us. We remember Christ's body, we remember his blood, we remember what he did for each and every one of us on the cross that day. But just as much as communion is a reminder, it is also a, to focus our attention forward. It is to focus our attention on the future. Look at verse 26, and it speaks to what we also proclaim when we celebrate communion together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, we remember in this celebration, but we also proclaim we proclaim Christ's death. We proclaim Christ's substitution on our behalf that paid the penalty for our sins. And we also declare that the same one who was sacrificed on the cross, who died and was buried and was raised three days later and returned to heaven, is one day coming back to receive us to himself. Every time we celebrate communion, we say we believe in what Christ did and we believe that one day he will come again for us. We proclaim that Christ's resurrection verified his victory over sin and death, and one day he will come back again. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we declare that though we don't yet see him, one day we will. One day he's coming back, and we live for that hope. And it's part of the reason we can't live with indifference to our brothers and sisters because someday in eternity, the way we treat each other and the way we fought with each other won't matter because Christ will be back. In communion, we remember Christ's sacrifice and in communion, we proclaim the truth of the gospel in Christ's return. Again, complicated sentence, so follow with me here. Communion is about the cross. Communion is about the church. Communion is about the cross. It's about what Christ did, not what we do. Many of you will be familiar. There's an illustration out there that you can see, and I didn't put it up on the board because it's fairly simple. It's the idea that you're going along, and it's a straight line, and it represents your life up to the point of salvation when you come to a saving knowledge of Christ. 
And at that moment, a downward line begins to project from your life as you realize the depravity of your own sinful heart. And at the same time, an upward line shows how you become more and more aware of just how holy and just how righteous God is. And so what you have is you have this line that extends, and then you have a downward line, and you have an upward line, and it extends over the course of your life. And in between those two things is your recognition of the significance of the cross. When you come to saving faith initially, you realize my heart is really depraved and God's holiness is really amazing. But over the course of your life, those two lines get wider and wider and wider as you realize just how much depravity is in your own heart and just how holy and righteous God is. And in that moment, you have an increasing awareness of just how significant and just how big the cross of Christ is. Over the course of your life, as you become, again, this church thought they were so mature. They thought they were so impressive. And Paul says if you were really mature, you would understand just how depraved your own heart is and just how high God's holiness, and you have an increasing awareness of the cross of Jesus Christ and what that means for you. Communion is about the cross. Communion is a moment to remember that reality. Which brings the question, if you're, if you're an unbeliever, if you're a visitor with us this morning, you may find our time together this morning really strange. We're glad you're here. We really are. We're thrilled that you've chosen to join us, and we recognize that this may seem a little bizarre to you. But we encourage you to watch what we do. We encourage you to ask questions of your friends or your neighbors or someone you came with or myself after the service. Because what we are doing here today is a declaration of the gospel that we believe. And it may seem strange and it may seem bizarre, but it's a physical, tangible representation of what we say we believe. It's also part of the reason I would encourage you not to take the elements when we do later. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ, we're glad you're here, but we encourage you not to take the elements simply because we don't want you to say something with your actions that you don't believe in your heart. But I do beg you that as you listen this morning and as we take the elements, you consider the realities of the gospel that we are declaring. That God is holy and righteous, and apart from him, you cannot earn your own salvation and eternity with God. That is only possible through one, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you place your faith and your trust in him for the penalty for your sin, the wrath of God that you deserve to bear, that he instead bore for you, you can have a relationship with God and you can live in eternity with him. So consider what we do here this morning. Watch what we do here this morning. And don't go away without having a recognition of what it means for you. For us as individual believers, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we participate in something month after month after month over the course of a lifetime and not become numb to it, not become indifferent to it? I would argue that by recognizing why we celebrate communion, you can make it significant again and again and again in this act where we affirm the past of what God has done for us and we announce the future of the fact that he's coming back again, that should be a growing significance in your heart and in your mind. And as you consider your attitude, there should be both a sobriety and a celebratory attitude with it, a recognition of how serious this is, but also a celebration of the fact that Christ paid it all for you. (coughs) And the more you realize that over the course of your Christian walk, the more significant this celebration becomes. Now, if I have any time left, which I don't know, (laughs) Paul transitions into the specific application he has in mind for the church. 
Look at verse 27 through 34, and Paul begins to get practical. He starts off by saying, Whoever, therefore, whoever, anyone that's listening in the church as this letter is being read aloud, let me tell you what you need to do. He offers both a warning, a negative for unworthy eating, and an encouragement to the appropriate way to respond to the Lord's Supper. First, his warning in verses 27 through 32. He speaks of our guilt. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul very practically looks at this church and he says, the way you've been celebrating communion is actually giving or bringing guilt upon yourselves. And so he encourages them to self-examination. He says, let a person examine himself. Consider the way you're treating your brothers in Christ. Look at your own heart as you engage in communion. And then he says, discern the body. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. It begs the question, what body does he have in mind here? He's been referring to body in kind of two ways, and in chapter 12, he's going to continue that discussion. Are we talking about the body as in the physical body of Christ, or are we talking about the body as in the church? I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. I think what he's speaking to is consider Christ's body, his sacrifice for you, and consider Christ's body, the church that's around you. As you eat and drink these elements, if you don't consider those realities, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And what does that judgment look like? And this is where things get a little little uncomfortable for us, because we read in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. See, the judgment of God is so severe, and remember all the other criticisms that Paul has offered here in 1 Corinthians, all of their divisions and all of their disagreements and all of their disunity and the way they're treating each other, and yet, this is the moment that he says, God is judging you specifically for this. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Three things we need to note about God's judgment here. First, it is physical. He says, you are weak and ill and some have died because you are disregarding the Lord's Supper here today. Now, that does not mean that we all run around and every time we get a sniffle, we become convinced that that's because I'm doing something wrong with the Lord's Supper. It's not what Paul's encouraging here. And yet he is saying that one of the ways that God disciplines and judges his church is through physical illness because they're disregarding this. We need to take that as a sobering reminder. But in addition to being physical, this judgment is also conditional. Look at verse 31. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. He said, if you weren't disregarding the body, if you weren't disregarding the Lord's Supper, you wouldn't be judged. You want to have these things stop, start considering the true nature of the Lord's Supper and communion. But lastly, and this is really important to note, in addition to being physical and conditional, God's judgment here is instructional. And I think that's so critical to note. Look at verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He's not talking of eternal condemnation here. He's saying Christ is trying to get your attention. He's trying to get you to correct this behavior. And I could go to any other places throughout Scripture that speak of God's discipline and God's correction. It's no coincidence that disciple and discipline have the same root word. It's corrective. It's restorative. God is saying, I'm trying to get your attention through the judgment that I'm bringing on you because I want to bring you back to faith and repentance. To avoid God's corrective discipline, 
we must celebrate by communion, by examining our hearts and by considering our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to take a warning like this very seriously as we consider the Lord's table today. And then Paul gets even more practical. He says, so then, brothers, look at 33, or verse 33. He says, so then, brothers, what is Paul's encouragement to this church? When you come together, there it is again, to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. He says, remember, your gatherings are causing more harm than good. So when you come together, do it unselfishly. When you gather together, wait for each other, care for each other, look out for each other, consider each other, all the other one another's that we could talk about in Scripture. We cannot celebrate Christ's love for us while treating our brothers and sisters unlovingly. You realize the hypocrisy of celebrating how much Christ loved us while treating your brothers and sisters with contempt. Paul is saying, you need to understand this. So in addition to communion being about the church and communion being about the cross, communion is about the heart. Communion is about the heart that you bring into this ceremony, to this celebration. It's not a mere ritual that we go through just because it's rote and just because we need traditions in the church. This is significant because of the church. This is significant because of the cross and it's significant because of what's going on in our hearts. So I'd encourage you, Examine your heart. We're going to slow down on our time together a little bit this morning. We're going to linger on this idea of examining our heart and confessing our sin to God. Not because we come to God in communion because we have it all together. He's not saying if you're good enough, you can come to this table. He's saying those that come to this table are those that are repentant. Those that recognize they aren't good enough. Those that recognize they need God's help. And that is the attitude, that is the heart that we must put on as we approach the Lord's table together today. And I would also encourage you, Paul's warning here of engaging in communion in an unworthy way is a serious warning. If necessary, if you recognize as you consider your own heart that there is a sin you are harboring, then there is a brother or sister that you have offended, just let the elements go by. It's not meant to call you out. It's not meant to make you feel ashamed, but I would encourage you to consider the possibility that you could incur judgment on yourself by eating in an unworthy way. Here's the point. And again, I know this is really eloquent. I spent a lot of time working on this. Key point for today's message. Communion isn't just about you. That's Paul's point. Communion is about the church, communion is about the cross, and communion is about your heart, but ultimately communion isn't just about you. And in that way, the church isn't just about us either. It is so easy to think that it should be, that everyone should just tailor things to the way I would like them to be. If you're young, it's easy to think that the church needs to work to become more relevant for me. If you're older, it's easy to think that the church should embrace traditions for me. If you're new to the church, it's easy to think that the church needs to adapt to be more embracing of me. Or if you're rich, like they were here in Corinth, it's easy to think the church should respect my gifts and contributions. But what's amazing about communion is it forces us to take the focus off of just ourselves. I love the way Michael Green describes Paul's theology of communion here. He says there's this six-fold paradigm that Paul encourages us to in communion. 
He says, first, we look back. We look back to Christ's death and what Christ did for us. Second, we look in. We consider and self-examine our own hearts. We look up as we worship God as the one who saved us. We look around at the fellowship of believers and consider the other brothers and sisters in Christ. We look forward to one day when Christ will return for us again. And we look out, proclaiming the gospel and the truth of what we believe in this celebration to a watching and dying world. That's what communion's all about. It takes the focus off of us and returns it back to God and to the cross of Christ and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we would do well to consider that as we engage in this ceremony together this morning. Let's pray. Father, the truth of your word is infallible. And it cuts. But Lord, it also saves. And so we as fallen people admit that we need you. The fact that we are engaging in celebrating the Lord's Supper today together is a reminder that none of us was perfect, none of us was holy apart from you. So we pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together today. For your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.